Welcome. This is Philippe Albuquerque. I am the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. I'm delighted today to welcome Pei Ling Shum, who is a resident medical officer from Monash Health Center in Australia. She is the first author on a recent publication that is currently in the print uh, November issue of the JNIS and is also currently online. The title of her manuscript is Environmental Sustainability in Neurointerventional Procedures, a Waste Audit. At the outset, I would like to say that this editor-in-chief podcast is supported by Rapid Medical, the maker of the Komenichi aneurysm embolization device. The Komenichi is the only temporary coiling assist device that does not require parent vessel occlusion during coiling procedures or the need for long-term antiplatelet medication for permanent stenting. The Komenichi is currently available in Europe and was recently cleared for marketing by the FDA. Please see their website for further details. Again, uh, welcome Pei Ling Shum, uh, the author of this manuscript entitled Environmental Sustainability in Neurointerventional Procedures, a Waste Audit. Uh, Pei Ling, I wanted to congratulate you on this uh, very timely manuscript, and I basically wanted to get some information from you regarding what the impetus was behind this study. Certainly, the greening of the world is a, um, is a topic of much uh, concern and debate, uh, and this article is certainly uh, one that uh, comes at a very important uh, time. So basically, if you could describe uh, briefly what was the impetus behind this study? First of all, thank you so much for having me today. Um, it's a great opportunity to um, present what I've done. Um, so last year, climate change and carbon footprint have caught wide attention when Australia was battling with the bushfire crisis. Like most sectors in Australian economy, healthcare negatively affects the environment by emitting carbon into the atmosphere, producing waste and consuming natural resources. One of the study by Malik et al. published in The Lancet found that healthcare actually contributed to 7% of Australians' total carbon footprint, and hospitals and pharmaceuticals were responsible for the largest contributors of healthcare-associated carbon footprint in Australia. And we all know that neurointerventional procedures are resource-intense, utilizing enormous electricity to power machines, computers, and geobiplane machines, utilizing expensive devices in procedures like coils, stents, wires, and catheter. And we also know from our surgeons and anesthetic colleagues that operating room contribute between 20 to 70% of hospital waste. And one single operation may generate waste exceeding the amount generated in a week by a family of four. As endovascular treatment and neurointerventional procedures assume an expanding role in the treatment of neurovascular conditions such as stroke and aneurysm, and as the number of neurointerventional procedures increases, the waste burden that's generated also increases exponentially. We can see the amount of waste we generated at the end of each case, but there's no objective data or statistic in the literature that support the findings. Hence, this propelled us to perform this waste audit to find out what actually we generated in our procedure. 
Interesting. Um, I was curious how you picked these 17 procedures. I assume that these were uh, just concurrent procedures that uh, occurred consecutively, but uh, was there any specific type of procedure that you were uh, taking a particular concern over or a look at? Um, this procedure wasn't, weren't chosen specifically. Um, we just wanted a rough idea of what was generated in each type of procedures and compare them, like calling VSA embolization and mechanical thrombectomies, which are the bulk of the common procedure done in our angio suite. Could you discuss a little bit about the different types of waste? You mentioned general waste versus clinical waste versus plastic waste. Can you, can you discuss what those uh, specifically are and how they related to these 17 procedures? Um, so general waste is actually non-hazardous, so they don't require any treatment and can proceed directly to landfill, just like our household's waste. On the other hand, clinical waste include materials that are potentially infectious, contaminated with blood or bodily fluid. So examples of clinical waste include dressing and wound care items, clinical specimens such as microbiology culture, pathology specimen, biopsy specimen, waste from patients known to have or suspected to have a communicable disease. And this includes our coronavirus and also our PPE. And other clinical waste include cytotoxic waste, pharmaceutical, drug or medicine, and sharp waste. Um, these items have their own dedicated bins and must not be mixed. And clinical waste, um, in contrast to general waste, requires treatment prior to safe disposal. And methods of treatment include incineration, autoclave, microwave, or chemical treatment. Um, yeah, so many people have this misconception that all items that come into physical contact with a patient are classified as infectious and are thus inappropriately put in clinical waste bin. However, unless waste is visibly soy, dripping, or caked with blood or bodily fluid, it's actually classified as general waste. So examples of materials that are often inappropriately classified as clinical waste include preparation sick, gloves that are not contaminated with blood, ventilation tubing, suction tubes, foley urinary catheters, mask, incontinence pad, and emesis bag. And items with urine, feces, and vomit should not be considered as clinical waste unless they come from a patient known or suspected of having communicable disease or are visibly contaminated with blood. I was wondering if you had experienced any change uh, with the pandemic in terms of the sheer amount of waste. I would think that with uh, the pandemic that there would be an increase uh, in the number of waste products, uh, especially given now our need to use PPE. Has this occurred at your institution or did you see this trend uh, during your study? Um, our study wasn't done during the COVID pandemic period. I mean, it hasn't really affected Australia at that, at that time period yet. Um, but I certainly think that COVID-related precautions now have definitely increased the amount of generated waste. So in our hospital, um, one is required to wear a mask, a face shield, hat, gown, and glove when being involved in a COVID or suspected COVID case. Compared to this to before the COVID pandemic where 
staff who are not scrubbed in only required to wear a mask and a hat or perhaps shoe covers. Um, so the amount of wage generated is obvious in the COVID pandemic era. And not only that, PPE that you wear while looking after patients suspected or diagnosed of having the virus is actually considered clinical waste and you must dispose of it in a clinical waste bin. Another issue that uh, I was uh, interested in was specifically the mechanical thrombectomy procedures. Now these uh, often, uh, at least at our institution, we, we have prearranged uh, tables with, uh, with equipment that's already uh, selected. And it really is kind of a general mechanical thrombectomy tray. And often we don't use all of the equipment that's, uh, that is on this, these trays. Did you uh, encounter this and has your practice uh, at your hospital changed as a result of, of your study? Um, so I think the INR specialists can redesign and revise procedural packs according to local preference to minimize unnecessary items and packaging. So in our institution, we have our own angio and neuro packs as well. And um, we specifically uh, modify it to suit our preference. And components that are never used or customized for individual patient case are not put in the pack. Um, I think we should only open devices when necessary, use operator preference cards, educate staff regarding the cost of devices to minimize this open unused device. And to avoid open unused device, our theater staff also discuss and record individual interventional neuroradiologist um, equipment preferences before the procedure. And devices that may, need, may be needed are placed in the vicinity but not open unless instructed by the interventional neuroradiologist or otherwise when only uh, open when needed. Um, and also when those open unused equipment um, happen, we can repurpose, by, repurpose them by donating them to medical schools or for educational purpose. Um, our hospital actually have a centralized store which collects items no longer used by the department to be redistributed as a resources for other areas. So this helped us to minimize our own waste as well. So were these changes in place when you had conducted your study or are these changes that were enacted after you uh, achieved this data? Um, this was enacted during um, our study period. And has your practice changed at all as a result of the, the data that you acquired? Um, yes, um, so we started more of our recycling um, program. Um, we also um, increased our awareness among our staff. So staff are more educated of what they should be more aware of um, and help to recycle uh, waste and also classify waste accordingly to what type of waste they are. One of the things that I thought was just incredible is, the, you know, these user manuals that are that are sent with in every one of the packages, basically, of the equipment that we use. And, and I think you mentioned in your manuscript that these are often, you know, more than 100 pages in length and uh, in translated into different languages. How do you how do you see in the future that we can mitigate something like this, that we can we can change this and get rid of this you know, huge potential waste? 
Um, so yes, we couldn't believe it ourselves as well. Um, so in fact, one of the calling with tumor embolization case generated 5.3 kilogram in total of paper waste, which include 2.7 kilogram of packaging boxes and 2.6 kilogram of user manual. And this actually far exceeded the amount of general waste produced. Um, as you said, most of the user manual are thick. Some are exceeding 100 pages and are often printed in different languages. However, these user manuals are never read and are thrown directly into general or recycled bin. After all, who has the time to read it before a mechanical thrombectomy case for a stroke case? Um, and time is brain. Not to mention, I think doctors who use the device should already be trained and hold the required expertise. So I think it's kind of impractical to put instruction in the manual because it may be too lengthy and complex to be provided directly on the device packaging. So we actually suggest um, digitizing these paper instruction via online internet links or quick response code. Um, I think this will no doubt reduce the amount of paper wasted. Yeah, well, I, I do think that there that the majority of these these uh, instructions for use are likely already digitized, <laughs> uh, I, but I, I don't think that uh, the users read them particularly either on their computers or or use the manuals yeah. themselves. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's usually we learn how to use these devices when we're uh, either a go to a course or, or there's a, uh, an instructor that teaches us how to use them. So yeah. yes, certainly this, uh, this does account for a tremendous amount of, of, uh, of waste. Well, and how do you see the interventional suite of the future in terms of how it should be managed and how optimally it can obtain the, the greenest, so to speak, results possible? So I think uh, everyone can do their bit. So um, we can be more um, aware of what we are generating. First of all, um, the interventional neuroradiologists should think about how they practice um, and what they are using, what they are generating. Um, and they should also educate um, people around them, the staff, um, not to waste anything. Um, staff should also know how to classified waste according to the waste type and make sure that they are, um, those that are recyclable are put in the recyclable bin because most often we saw that um, misclassification waste is quite a serious problem and um, general waste are put in clinical waste bin and also paper and cardboard are put in general waste bin when they are supposed to be um, uh, recycled. Um, I also think that um, packaging and also how things are put in the pre-packed um, devices that are put in a pre-packed device should be um, customized so that there are no open unused device um, and only open device when only necessary. Um, there are also things that we can do such as um, implementing additional recycling program, which is um, such as our soft plastic recycling initiative in our hospital. Um, so I think all these uh, are general things that we can do, um, like not just in interventional neuroradiology suite, but um, in general in the radiology department. Certainly. Could you decipher from your study whether or not there was any particular type of neurointerventional procedure which you felt probably generated the most uh, waste and potentially could be changed the most to, to reduce that waste? 
Um, so in our waste audit, we found that calling cases produce the greatest waste burden at 13.1 kilogram. Um, and most of this um, waste generated is actually from the paper waste that I mentioned, the user manual and also the packaging boxes. Um, because the number of coils that this procedure uses, um, it, it causes this high amount of um, uh, paper waste. Um, and we also found that clinical waste is actually one of the highest um, amount of waste generated during uh, each procedures. About 60% of the total waste is actually come from clinical waste. I think this is um, compared to the international standard of having less than 15%. I think this high amount of clinical waste is something that we should think about um, and make sure that we don't um, inappropriately segregate waste um, into the clinical waste bin. Certainly. Well, um, I wanted to congratulate you and thank you again for, for this uh, thought-provoking manuscript. Again, it's entitled uh, Environmental Sustainability in Neurointerventional Procedures, a Waste Audit. It was printed in the November print issue of the JNIS and is currently online. I will say as well that um, there is an accompanying commentary by uh, Scott Raymond uh, and Leslie Mazwi, as well as Dr. Joshua Hirsch uh, pertaining to this article. And I would uh, urge our readers to read both that commentary and uh, Dr. Shum's um, thought-provoking manuscript. Again, thank you for your time today. I know it was a bit of a challenge uh, coordinating this with you in Australia, but I appreciate your work and uh, your contribution to the JNIS. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's my honor. Thank you so much.